This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The 2021 Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival was held in Aotearoa, Dunedin, our UNESCO City of Literature, from the 6th until the 9th of May. In this podcast series, we share recordings from these sessions with you. In Politics of Poetry, David Eagleton, Fiona Farrell and Jessica Thompson-Carr examined the way poetry reflects the mood of the people and can subvert and challenge societal views. Chaired by Emma Neal and presented by Otago University Press. Tēnā koutou katoa, malau alele, nisabula vinaka, noa ia e Māori. No mai haere mai. Ko Emma ahau. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Emma Neal, and I'm here to act as the chair this afternoon. Can I remind everyone in the auditorium and actually on stage as well to just turn your um, telephones on silent or off if you have them? Thank you. I hope mine's on silent. I did try, but sometimes technology disobeys, doesn't it? The moment we open our mouths, politics are involved. Who has the right to speak? The language we use, be it English as the colonising tongue, te reo, or another mother tongue. What accent we speak in, what vocabulary we use, these things inevitably reflect perceived status, class, power dynamics, historical and current, education, generation, cultural background, maybe even some personal life choices. Perhaps any verbal utterance or conversation can be seen as a test of reciprocity, a jostle for power, a small or large tug of war, the chance for either understanding or misunderstanding to break out, and then in the awake, grievance or joy and accord. Yet a poem is a particularly honed, reflected on and worked over artefact of language. So it does some things very differently to ordinary speech or even to written prose. One of the many things that a poet might have a duty to, alongside history, society, community, iwi, whānau, family, is to particular laws or demands of their craft, the shaping of words on the page or for the ear. So we've got duty to the art on one hand and the dynamics of a speaker-listener dynamic on the other, two very different angles on the poet's role. And that's before we've even started to talk about the potential content in any particular poem. For the anthology um, Manifesto Aotearoa, 101 Political Poems, my co-editor Philip Temple and I put out a call for poems that could cover anything from prime ministerial power to the price of milk. And I think today the subject range could be equally broad. It could cover racism, immigration, environment, gender politics, ageism, the media, terrorism, war, you know, the list could go on. The connection between poetry and dissent, and therefore political persecution, is age old. Plato would have chucked out everyone here on stage <laughs> out of his ideal republic, um, for working in illusion, what he thought was a non-pragmatic art, and for stirring up undesirable passions. <laughs> History and the present day are all riddled with writers who've been persecuted, imprisoned, tortured, exiled, and even murdered for their views. A poem is often an, a supreme act of courage. 
But as readers and audiences, I don't think we're entirely off the hook either. I've been wondering if one of the many um, potent political things that poetry does is ask us to read critically, to debate internally the right or wrong of certain interpretations line by line. It asks an intense mental sharpness of us, um, which is a close cousin to the ability, I think, to detect and filter bullshit in all kinds of speech um, and address. If poetry fosters that, does it also help to, um, to foster a more alert, thinking, democratic citizenry? I'm hoping that the panel will tussle with these kinds of questions for us today, but before that happens, I really want to introduce each one separately, and then we get a chance to hear their particular voice and their particular concerns before we launch into the discussion. So I'd love to introduce David Eagleton, former editor of Landfall, so a very strong advocate for other writers, a recipient of the Prime Minister's Award for Literary Achievement, and the winner of the Poetry Award at the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards in 2016. David is also our current Poet Laureate. When you say Poet Laureate, you know that's a shorthand for a huge list of awards and honours, usually represented by the very long tokotoko he usually carries around with him. David's work ranges from the piercingly lyrical to epic post-colonial tsunamis of language that exhibit a zany abundance of imagination and I think an extraordinary capacity to hold wild contraries together in a work that often has the spring and salt of satire. The poems condense such a vast general knowledge and comment on so many social phenomena that sometimes when I'm reading his work, I just think, basically, David is the internet. <laughs> David, I'd be delighted if you could read for us. Um, thank you very much, Emma, for the introduction. Cure everyone. Um, um, Emma mentioned a tsunami of language. I suppose this one is going to be a bit like that. It's actually um, my most recent poem, and um, it's called The Clock of the Long Now. And um, I have read it once before. Some of you may have heard it um, when I read it. Um, but um, I have been asked, actually, um, by people who have heard it, to, if they could read it, because they found it a bit sort of all over the place. But anyway, I'll read it for you now. <laughs> the Clock of the Long Now. Hear the voice of the bard who past, present and future sees, intoned our own William Blake, James K. Baxter, in his back-to-front overcoat, hitchhiking towards Jerusalem and waiting for the future to catch up with him. Poetry touches the soul from the beginnings of the world, where we were once whole, and maybe two reaches for Shakespearean oblivion, where our, pa- our future's in the stars. In Maori thought, the past is actively confronted by the living. The past is called Nara Omua. The days in front, time collapses into a continuous present, into the long clock of now. Our clock, though, might have been painted by Salvador Dali. It seems to be melting along with the glaciers. So what does the future hold? What does the future hold besides another flickering episode of Burnt Planet narrated by the computer-generated voice of Sir David Attenborough? <laughs> the future is no longer what it was because we wanted flying cars. And we, what we got was Twitter, or 140 characters in a novel by Ellie Catton. In the era of COVID-19, we locked down to save the power and the glory of the nation for the future. It ain't nothing, so give it a name, the future. In quantum mechanics, the answers surround us, but we don't know the question. Call it the future. We here in Aotearoa with our communist princess leader are the blacksmiths of the red future. 
We hammer out the keys to happiness living in Te Waipunamu. The world's gone indoors, but we're rewilding parks and lawns and knitting together wild and woolly yarns for the foreseeable, for the future, where climate change is a loose change of conversation dropped on the food chain of the homeless. And hedge funds light up with neoliberal domination. And Uncle Ho-Hum is there in the easy chair with all the great and the good with shiny faces, greasy with butter and China-bound milk powder. The casino table aces flung on a green hectare. The future is not what it was. And may Jeff Bezos save the Amazon, but not in his image. And may Elon Musk turn into a skull trinket. Wreathed in the musk of cannabis sativa, and may the screw loose the hyperloopies. Those who dwell in the last chance saloon learn their face. Fate at last, drought, famine, mudslide, refugee camp, bread queue. Just press that button, bro, and up we all go. The car bleats in response to a thumbed key fob. So spritz some Bezos into your existence. The abracadabra of Alibaba is Amazon. Ocean to ocean, one clearing station, Amazon. Container by container, metal is anything, Amazon. The hypernormals are in denial about the source of the Nile and wearing cut-off denims and a faded tan, and each one is a very big fan of the last one. And there goes Elon Musk's sky train. Silver is Santa's sleigh. Lit by the sun's last ray in a dark sky on Christmas Day, chugging across the Milky Way, bringing strings of satellites to every quadrant, flagrant, vagrant space junk in every quadrant that's up there, binding the globe to its transponders in perfect wonder and interstellar cold as we look on from our cowrie tree platform where feral things snuffle and hoot into the early morn. In the future, the plant manages a planet, manages a thousand-hour day as normal, but it only lasts a nanosecond in the long clock of now. A psychic numbing may be your best defence. You're tracked past, mined and modified to make sense, then caressed to find what you like best. The right to be forgotten has been removed in jest, but exclusion is not an option. See the eggplant emoji that ate Chicago for Ford is in his flipper, and we got your cargo. And for what you want, how far will you go? It's all gone to the great aggregator at the worm farm. But how are you going to pay for what you just took? It's the wisdom of Uncle Google in his little red book down in the deep of deeps where he keeps his rest. So what does the future hold when they're paying attention, the attention economy, all those eyeballs, rolling loose, now jammed in a jam jar strobed by white light, white noise the X things only a Y would understand the 13 struggles all left handers know to be true, the 21 things the algorithm knows about you on this earth, this one weeping eyeball where neophiliacs check their messages looking for a weapons upgrade and glut upon glut has gone splut and the nut section of the supermarket is the largest, anti-vaxxer nuts, conspiracy nuts, gun nuts Science denying nuts, religious nuts. Nobody move, everybody down, everybody reach high. Who knows who anymore? It's always the other guy. Get your core meaning scrambled in a blender, then sliced and diced and sold off before being returned to sender. Go ahead and crypt the Pentagon to baseline anon, where everything is coloured high key and seems to offer serendipity as you prepare to deactivate the sock med binary, either stolen or broken or burning, faster, 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 yada, yada, yada. But really, what the future holds for you and me is just another cup of tea, comfort slippers and a lumpy sofa, and quietly waiting till this COVID is over. The future repeats as you creak up the stairs, horrendous youth, querulous dear dears, dry leaves falling from deciduous trees and no let up on your diagnosed disease. There's no let up, no one stops, all is forward momentum until the next generation and more moral panic, more fornicating in the streets, angst in the pants and fancy schmancy OE. They got booths for the aged, booths for the terminal and a plan for hospital that looks unwell. 
But build me up, buttercup, don't break my heart. Shouldn't the future be a brand new start? Dream one buster because the future's lost its luster. From the salt and pepper mop top of Sergeant Pepper to the shiny busby of American Princess Markle that's bolder, better and has more sparkle. The puppet strings of algorithms animate us endlessly through every kind of insecurity. Yesterday was so five minutes ago, it's got up and gone to Gonville again. So everyone get on the particle accelerator. Everyone get with the giggle generator. Everyone say see you later. Everything's correctable if it's detectable. Eyes brighter than the eye of Sauron. They are talking to baby Yoda about the future. Loud as the buzz of all the bees in Bumbledom. There's a march for equal rights by a million possums and off and on, cue and on, shuffle off to Buffalo. As my autograph is my witness, they strip mine my data to make it their business. How sharp is your semiconductor? How green is your Silicon Valley? Collective murmuration, crack of the starter's pistol, draw a red rectangle around it and call it the AI recognition state. Out on the bleeding edge where the future is being made with a 20% error rate. Never too smart to learn, never too old to dance. And end times, the future is toast and I'm history. Escaping with a hiss and maybe a sense of mystery. Kiora. <laughs> Thank you, David. Next up is um, Fiona Farrell, a writer whose work I've loved ever since my grandmother sent me one of her novels when I lived overseas, and I felt that umbilical tug of missing home even more intensely after reading the fictional lives of women of my mother's generation and their conflicts and struggles. Fiona writes deeply affecting fiction and non-fiction as well as poetry. Among many other honours, Fiona has been appointed an Officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to literature. She's also held the prestigious two-year Michael King Creative New Zealand Writers' Fellowship. Her poetry often stands alongside the dispossessed, the struggling, the overlooked, and helps to bring their voices into the room. From working-class Irish immigrant serving girls to, say, an older woman trying to navigate the loss of the social role of mother... And like David, she is capable of biting political satire. Fiona, can you please read for us now? Too? Thank you. Um, well, uh, I'm, thank you, Emma. That's lovely. Oh, I'm going to read three poems because political poetry for me um, can, can come from various sources. It's prompted by various things. So I'm first of all going to do that Irish servant girl um, this is one of the earliest poems that I had published um, in a series of songs. They were actually songs written for a play about the girls who'd been brought out by the government in the 1880s to stock the colony. And forgive me, I'm going to be repeating poems, these three I've read before, so I'm sorry if you've heard them already. But um, I'm trying to make a point that one of the sources for my politics is feminism. So this is the voice of... Charlotte O'Neill, who came out when she was 17, from Cork, probably. Um, You rang your bell and I answered. I polished your parquet floor. I scraped out your grate and I washed your plate and I scrubbed till my hands were raw. You lay on a silken pillow. I lay on an attic cot. That's the way it should be, you said. That's the way poor girls lot. You dined at eight and slept till late. I emptied your chamber pot. The rich man earns his castle, you said. The poor deserve the gate. But I'll never say sir or thank you, ma'am. And I'll not curtsy any more. 
You can bake your bread and make your bed and answer your own front door. I've cleaned your plate and I've cleaned your house and I've cleaned the clothes you wore. But now you're on your own, my dear. I won't be there anymore. And I'll eat when I please and I'll sleep where I please. And you can open your own front door. So that's that's Charlotte. Um, Another source is um, from current events, from uh, things that are happening around me that um, drive me completely bonkers, and I read about them in the paper. So a big source for me is the work of journalists. Um, So I'm going to read um, a quick poem about... um, Christchurch in its state of being totally demolished and rebuilt by a man who had greater powers of veto than any cabinet minister, any government minister um, ever in New Zealand history, total power of veto over what was to happen to a city in New Zealand. And somehow that was just fine and we all let it happen. So, panegyric. He's the Minister of Earthquakes and Tectonic Upheaval. His portfolio is forces chthonic and primeval, the pilot of our sinking ship, the shepherd of our flock, the man to lead us safe between hard place and fallen rock. He's the man who wears the hard hat, the man who has the plan, the man who hands out contracts, the man who says who can, the man who cannot be opposed, the man who knows what no one knows, who sees which way the earth tilts and how the hard winds blow. The minister of all that falls of blood and broken bone, of tidal wave and tumbled wall, silt and shattered stone, a prophet for his people. He'll have his statue in the square, beside the fallen steeple, beneath the fallen stair. The hills bow down, the oceans kneel before his mighty rod, Penjandrum, plenipotentate, and next in line to God. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> Johnny Old Brownlee. Um, And then there's poems which have a wider global context. Um, And I'm going to read a part of a series that I wrote um, about the war in Iraq, the 1991 war in Iraq, and the consequent birth defects that affected children in that city, in that country, because of the use of depleted uranium. And again, it came from a newspaper article from one of those amazing journalists, um, Maggie O'Kane, who was working for The Guardian, which was an examination where she'd gone and interviewed doctors and heard about these babies who were being born without heads. So um, this is one of those poems. There was a little boy, a photograph a little boy whose name was Hamid Amiri, and he had an enormous head, and he was sitting on his mother's knee, a beautiful little boy. It's called Hamid Amiri's Skull Won't Stop Growing. Hamid Amiri's Skull Won't Stop Growing. This is the language of war. Can you hear it? Not trumpets or drums, nor the thrumming of machines, nor the thud of the big guns. Not the soldier 
crooning to his sweetie as he polishes his boots. This is the sound a child makes who's born with no head. This is the sound a woman makes who labours to bear a child who's without fingers, a child whose head swells like a pumpkin. Can you hear it? This is the sound of bone cells in frenzy. This is the sound of an eyeball rolling like bruised fruit in the socket. This is the sound the child hears who has no ears. This is the sound of war. This is the blaring of trumpets and the clapping of satisfied shareholders. This is the whistling of the scientist in his laboratory. This is the babble of many tongues as they are simultaneously translated in the glass towers in the stone city. This is the burping of the fat men and the scratching of their pens signatory to all conventions. Can you hear it? The soft rush of water as the babies slip onto the table, crying though they have no mouths, listening though they have no ears, their tendril fingers twisted in threads of meaning. And that's politics. Thank you, Fiona. As with our other readers, it's very hard to whittle down Jessica Thompson Carr's achievements to a quick introduction, even so early in her career. Jess, who is Ngāpuhi and Ngāti Ruanui, is a writer, an activist and an artist. In 2017, she started selling her work under the name Māori Mermaid on Instagram, and she's developed a substantial following and community there, to the point where I'd say she's become a kind of agony aunt and a spokeswoman <laughs> for many of her generation. Jess has had work, work published in Starling, Ear, Pantograph Punch and Landfall. She sometimes reviews for Landfall Review Online and her flash fiction won the Otago Regional Award in the National Flash Fiction Day for 2017. Her work almost seamlessly merges two worlds, or mythkete. It touches on ancestral presence, female sexuality, expresses deep empathy for others and makes an open call for change and political revolution. Jess, we'd love to hear you read as well. Thank you very much. That's so nice. Oh, Erin as well. I'll keep real still because I'm vain. I don't want to take them off. Um, (laughs) You said it all, so I'm just going to say these and hopefully that fills in whatever gaps there are. Um, This poem's called Bones. Lolling back like the thick tongue of a tanifa in our bed, belly out and purposeful, a naked, hairy lady of Charlotte, mist on the bathroom ceiling, closest to the heavens I'll ever be, obsidian canines and incisors trail toward my centerfold. You could almost see me cut into pieces, split like the wood of the flagpole, hacked down by Honeheke, tap, 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 taonga, rich karu karu. I am patient, yet desperate to know. Pleased to do the mahi, gasping to heal. Where are our bones? Why will you not share with me my bones? Where is my tongue, stolen for a trophy in war? Where is my tikanga, kept in the basement storage? Where is my mana, 
locked in the museum. Where am I far now? Scattered like dandelion seeds from the grating city to the harness maunga. Where will we go? How can we move forward if we do not look back? And this one is called Reading Ranganui Walker in Rahui. Kafaifai Tonumato. And it is a struggle without end. From consistent wero and ancestors locked into caves, jailed for protests, beaten for breathing, to influencing epidemics and classroom hidings by missionaries who gave us the muskets whilst preaching love and light, the fine print which was botched replaced our tamoko. Fresh ink on our faces, so confused were the translations that then confused our own, it has only been 700 years or so. Short fuse shadows cradle guns around brown neighbourhoods and prisons are stuffed to the brim with tangata whenua. People of the land severed from their birthrights by a floor of shivering concrete, the body of the earth cast like a broken leg and we are distracted from the old ways by to-do lists and guidebooks. How to survive the city you've been forced into. How to eat and pay rent and not get shot. How to breathe underwater without oxygen. Don't forget to reuse, reduce, recycle, we were told in school assemblies, whilst the government worked to quickly to reuse our koru and tiki, reduce Sareo and sikanga practices and recycle an entire people into a workforce designed to rub away at their modi like sandpaper on the tongue. Could this all be a dream? Eventually lifted by our children who carry us home, citing pre-colonial facts and writing essays on Tinaranga Tiratanga? Could this outgrow itself into a dream? Our wairua wanders, our modi remains. And maybe one more? Yeah. I haven't read this out loud, and it's probably not very well edited, but let's give it a go. Um, It's called Spitting on the Statue of Captain Cook. I saw you for the first time on the cover of a school textbook about New Zealand. I did not connect your brooding, doughy face with the fact that I could not recite my pepeha for years. I've been saving up my spit since I was five years old. That's why my mouth was so dry through all those questions from the schoolmates and the teachers. How much Māori are you? Where's your marae? Can you speak te reo? Why don't you look Māori? I couldn't answer, because little did I know, the saliva needed to lubricate my defence was waiting, brewing in my puku just for you. When we reached you at the harbour, I saw my partner and his sister spit, and I panicked, and walked back to the car because, oh, my mouth was dry still. At the sight of you, I felt my tipuna tremor and stir. We know what you were. We don't need to read the information plaque, and I felt, dare I say it, mamai for you. You so severed from nature that you felt you had to dominate it. Mamai for you and the people bound like tomatoes or sunflowers to the sticks of the monarchy only to grow crooked. Mamai for the people desperate to prove themselves to a clueless queen. Mamai that I put everything onto you, one man, because I have to, lest I lose my mind. The figurehead for the beginning of our trauma, you're a cog in the wheel, but I hate you nevertheless. I hate you, but I'm sad for you, and I weep for you, but I hate you. Despite my stress and going against the tikanga I was raised by to not spit in public, I walk back to you and release years of fury, self-doubt, resentment, and silence in one thick silvery wad. Watch yourself when you walk past, because it is still there, clinging to the stone. (laughs) The end. Thank thank all of you. Thank you all very much. And um, it just strikes me that actually applause is a very very therapeutic thing as well as a (laughs) celebrational thing, because it helps us kind of get some of the emotions that these poems have stirred up out Mm. out of our bodies. 
that gives you an excuse to clap really loudly at the end of the session as well, of course. So to open the discussion, and I'm, I'm hoping that I can kind of sit back a bit and you three will just go at it, hammers and tongs, and if I just throw the right, right question to you. Um, so I wanted to start with something quite broad. Do you think that poetry is inherently political? And how is it? How so, if so? Um, <laughs> I suppose I should begin. Um, I, I, my, my thoughts are that... Um, that, that um, Politics is sort of uh, um, is part of life, and therefore um, writing poems is, is is necessarily a political act. I mean, really, you have to kind of define what you mean by 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 political, because it, it, politics operates on different levels. There's a local and and personal, you know, identity as a, as a political act. How you choose to um, see yourself in, in the world today as a as a as a political act, and so. Um, I suppose, speaking for myself, um, I write poems which are in response to um, events in the society I live in, which is Aotearoa, um, to begin with, and then its place in, in the world. Um, and I, I sort of do it from my perspective, um, but in a series of persona. So, so I tend to choose a voice to, um, to, to carry the, 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 the words. Uh, and then um, sometimes... Um, there's a message, but I, I like the idea that um, that my poems are a bit oblique and, and not fully um, black and white. You know, the sort of shades of grey. Um, so that because I'm one of those people who tends to try to see all sides of a question um, and answer the, the 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 question with with multiple multiple answers, kind of thing, in a way. So, um, which is what I think poetry should be doing is kind of mm. keep that kind of ambiguity and ambivalence about about whatever it is you're writing about. Mm. Without quite maintaining neutrality. But, you know, you've, you've, you are kind of taking an angle, often. It's not, it's not being... Um, um, well, I mean, poetry is a complex craft. I mean, you could say, well, you've got your metaphors and your, you know, your use of language and, and what the, thing, the imagery that you're choosing, which is operating on one level, and, there's, and then there's sort of what you're on about and, and whether, you, whether you fully subscribe to what the poem is saying or whether the poem's taken on a life of its own and you suddenly, suddenly find it saying things that you didn't realise mm. were in the poem kind of thing. So mm. it's all about the um, animus and the energy and the kind of organic um, authenticity of the poem itself. It kind of makes its own statement, its own reality. Kind of, that's, that's a great poem, which is one which mm. kind of goes out there and lives, lives its own life out in the community. Um, that's what you're, I think that's what, what I'm after anyway mm. with my poetry. <laughs> so, yeah. How about you, Fiona? Um, Do you think it's inherently political or...? Well, for me, personally, every single thing I write is political. It's down to politics. I'm the child of socialism and feminism and a whole raft of political decisions that have been made over hundreds of years. And uh, my great-grandmother couldn't write her own name. She signed with a cross. So the fact that I can lift a pen, that I can spell, that I have an education, that I didn't die of scarlet fever when I was four, which I would have done probably 100 years earlier, mm. all of that is absolutely down to politics and decision-making and thank God for the 1935 Labour government, basically. Mm. Um, so, yeah, poetry, any act of anything that we do is influenced by politics, it's pervasive. But if you're meaning politics as, um, the, in the normal sense, you know, it's 
left versus right or any of that sort of thing. Um, uh, no, politics, um, poetry, I think, can take a, a point of view, and I hope, and, and sometimes I do, but other times I think it was, you know, we, there's the famous saying, tell it slant. Poetry comes at things side on, so not necessarily overtly right-wing or left-wing poetry, though I am a left-wing poet. <laughs> Just the same, yeah. And how about you, Jess? Um, yeah, so I tried to, uh, when I was growing up, I was sort of trying to just write emotionally from the heart and um, it all became very political and then I got really annoyed at how political my poems were becoming and I tried to sort of break from that and so I remember trying to write about a tree and then it without realising that you're trying to write the, about the beauty or the situation of this tree and then you find out you're writing about land. <laughs> land is political, stolen land, and about farmland. And um, I can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. And growing up in a society, and you know, you're, it's political. It's everywhere. It's, it's what we are swamped by. And it is everywhere. It is everything. So I don't think you can... Uh, sever the po politics from poetry. I think poetry is inherently political. I think everything we do is inherently political. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, same like being who I am, I can't not write mm. political poetry. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a kind of, it would be a false question to ask could you separate, could you divide your work up into the things that most often trigger supposedly political poems or yeah. other? It's too, too hard to pull That's it all the apart. It's fun of. What we do, though, isn't that we can, whether you, it's about interpretation, and if you, even if you tried to break it apart, someone will find a way to make it political, someone will find a way to interpret it that way, and that's out of your hands. I think in general, if I'm, if I'm looking at my own body of work, I would say poems where the you is specific where it's addressed to my daughter, my granddaughter, someone I'm in love with, um, a, a grandparent, then it's probably um, maybe less political or apolitical. I'm actually mm -hmm. writing personally. But whether you or the perceived um, audience is sort of non-specific, yes, they probably are going to have a political element. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just subtly check the time. <laughs> Not so subtly check the time. Um, I have I have about ten pages of questions <laughs> here. I'm just trying to think um, what would open up longer discussion. I suppose one of the things I've been thinking about is um, the reception of poetry and how that's become a very politicised area, um, or the reception of any art really in an age where we have um, Me Too and Black Lives Matter and um, many other social justice movements and how these things actually can change the way we read a poet or see an artist. Um, mm. And wondering, for all three of you, how you might let um, so-called cancel culture affect your reading of particular poets or whether it helps um, or hinders you in your own work in terms of what you feel brave enough to address. Mm. So there's a few nested questions there, I suppose. Um, right. <laughs> how does it um, affect Well, um, I... I um, I mean, I started writing, um, uh, um, actually coming back to what Jessica was saying about landscape and how landscape's actually a political kind of 
tract of land. You know, it's, it's got it's got a history and a context to it. And so when I started out writing, I used to write poems about growing up in New Zealand, living in New Zealand, but it was more about um, the things that really started to interest me was sort of, I started writing the time that Muldoon got elected, so in the 70s, <laughs> um, and um, I was interested in, in his role in New Zealand politics and how he was this kind of di- dictatorial figure. And um, But there was a whole kind of movement at that time springing, because um, I sort of grew up in the time of the Vietnam War, and, and you had all these parts like Adrian Mitchell writing against the Vietnam War over in the UK, and Allen Ginsberg and Robert Lowell, and um, and uh, other parts in America writing um, against the war, and so they were quite inspirational for me as a as a, a starting out poet to try and talk about um, kind of power basis and, and kind of the, so the, the way the way power operates in the world and sort of using poems to to write about that, and in a way that was a bit um, um, that was sort of a protest poetry, I suppose, is kind of what I was interested in writing at that time. So that's kind of actually. We, one of the one of the where I started off from one of the mm. impulses to my, mm. for my work. For me, the thing that's been most amazing in my life has been seeing people like Jessica standing up and saying a poem or mm. read, writing a poem. When I started out, it was such um, there was such an absence of female role models and then they were all people like Sylvia Plath or Virginia Woolf who killed themselves and that just that really wasn't inspiring Mm. Um, (laughs) um, although my husband said to me but then of course there was always Barbara Cartland (laughs) (laughs) who's teasing me about being too serious but the the whole feminist thing this whole um, the, 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 the multiplicity of voices in New Zealand and all the Women. When I, I two years ago I edited the IML's Best New Zealand Poets um, edition for that year, the vast majority were poems by young women. I can't tell you how wonderful it was to read Taisy Tibble saying, "Tell me, am I navigating correctly?" Mm. and Tusiata Avia, and just all these um, female voices. It, that's been the biggest thrill of my life, actually, and I came through on that, like you, you, you have your mentors. Mm. I didn't have mentors, but I found colleagues, mm. and that's yeah. been wonderful. I love the way you say in your introduction to The Selected, you talk about the landscape that you grew up in as a young poet, and how it felt as if there were a lot of male kakapo voices booming around the hillsides, and it was quite, <laughs> hard, to, quite hard to get your voice heard. It was. Um, but yeah. yeah, and it took a lot of courage from individual women to stand up and mm. do things like... Yeah, it's one of the things I'm not so sure about performance poetry for. I think I was very lucky that I started writing when performance wasn't an intrinsic part of being a poet because I think poets are often introspective and introvert and we're not necessarily soapbox orators. Mm. And so um, it makes it very difficult, I think, for the quiet, thoughtful poet, woman poet, yeah. to to say her truth because... You know, it's it's lovely going to the dog with two tails. I adore it, but um, you know, you have to have a bit of guts to get up there. <laughs> you know, 
yeah. Mm. And that wasn't, you know, I'm just thinking back to who were my role models growing up. Yeah, mm. Sylvia Plath. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> that was the, because she was the main uh, wahine poet who, who were taught. And I didn't know about J.C. Sturm or Arapeta Blanc until university. They didn't want to teach them at my school. And they didn't even, I don't think they had the books at my library or anything. And um, you grow up with these role models and you're like, this is the best I'm going to get. So I should probably end up like her, right? And and it's it's very dangerous because romanticizing all of these all of these things that you actually these poets need to get help for as well, and um, <laughs> that really informed a lot of my early poetry. But then I'm grateful for them, and I don't want to cancel. And I don't believe in cancel culture, but I believe in personal cancel culture. You might need to cancel. I don't read James K. Baxter. I would rather not. I cancel him in my head, but that's for me personally. <laughs> but these poets have informed me, and uh, my poetry wouldn't be what it is now without them, despite you know it not being maybe the best uh, offering. But that's also like a testament to how it is never too late to be inspired by the people who are coming out now. It's never too late to be influenced by them. And um, we're in such a renaissance right now. We're in such a golden age where Mm. people are everyone can share, anyone who's anyone can share. And I just Mm. think that's so beautiful. Mm. And And often we are in all sorts of political movements led by the young people, aren't we? Mm. Yeah. Like your son. change between (laughs) generations, you know... um, yeah. yeah, you've got to listen to the young people because um, I guess I, I, I'd imagine it can be quite frustrating when young people tell elders what's what and it goes against the grain of that tikanga of listening to elders and respecting elders when when young people do sort of stand up and say, oh, that's not okay, it's not tika anymore. Um, and there has to be a balance, right? There has to be a back and forth between the two and both must lead these protests and political times mm. yeah mm. that's interesting I brought a little poem in do you mind if I read it it's not by me it's by my <laughs> it's a poem that was pinned to the wall we're talking about being led by young people and the politics of youth at the moment it was pinned to the wall of a primary school in Wellington it's, mm. it's written by my granddaughter when she was seven and it was up there with the wonky horses and the very detailed cars and the aeroplanes, you know, and all that. It's pinned up there, and the headline in different coloured felt tips was Dreams of Hope. And I find it the most terrifying poem I think I've read ever. I go to sleep every night thinking of a future, even though we may not have one because of climate change. Tackling questions without answers, wishing I knew the truth, wondering what will happen, when it will happen, where it will happen. Wishing, 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 wondering, wondering, wondering. Sometimes I feel like a boat on a stormy sea, torn between then, there, now, here, wondering what I knew. And I I just, I just, that to me is a new kind of politics that we should be addressing. Mm. It reminds me of something that my, my grandfather used to say, which was that children ask the questions that the tribe has been asking for millennia. Uh-huh. Um, you know that I don't know if he was quoting someone else, but you know children have have such a wisdom and insight that we often forget. Mm. Um, yeah, I want, another question I wanted to ask was um, whether any of you have actually seen what you could call real-world change resulting from what you've written 
have you seen your poem actually cause change in the in the outside world? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't believe that. No? Not no. really. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't. I don't sort of see. Uh, um, um, I, um, it's it's really poetry, sort of part of human nature. We've always written poems, and um, and the poets come along and they express our feelings and anxieties and for for the tribe or for for the community. Um, and and that's what you do as a poet, I think, is you're kind of just trying to say say things as best you can and hope that it connects. I mean, uh, Hone Tufar has wrote those wonderful poems about um, anti-nuclear things like An Ordinary Sun mm. um, and, and against um, apartheid, you know, Oh Africa and, and poems like that, which really resonated with people at that time, speaking of how a lot of New Zealanders felt about those sorts of issues mm. and that. Um, and I wish that um, perhaps my poems might do something of the same. But at the moment, um, I, I, that's not really for me to decide. It's whether the community takes them up and, and, and finds ways of um, you know, passing them on or whatever, I think, really. Mm. My God, yeah. And where do people go when they're at rock bottom? They go to the arts to, to pull them out of it, right? Mm. What do we do when there's no more poetry in the world. I think poets don't realise how much power they really have. It's just not immediate and it's not maybe necessarily financial power which mm. is so highly valued but I think it's the most powerful thing because it's a therapeutic and it speaks to that helpless, hopeless feeling that we all share mm. and it can be so frustrating but when you read a poem that really resonates it can change everything. Mm. I think it's on a personal level but um for me, it's actually music that's been the galvanising thing. Mm. If I look back on all the different movements, you know, the tour, the Vietnam, um, anti-nuclear, it was it was songs. That it was when the poem, when the words were set to music, and they began to get a kind of beat. I mean, I've never forgotten sitting in a paddock or a field, actually, <laughs> in um, England at Bath, and 150,000 people all singing. Um, one, two, three, what are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't know, damn, way yonder in Vietnam. And it, there was this amazing feeling of the words and the music, very simple, um, having enormous mm. power. Mm. Um, I think, the, and the chants that we used um, on those marches were very simple, but they were rhyming, you know. Mm. One, two, three, four, we don't want your racist tour, mm. you know. Hey, hey, LBJ! How many kids have you killed today? Mm. You know, they, they, they were they were poetry, but they had to be simple because mm. you were galvanising mm. political action. Mm. So they became the uniting force. In a yeah, sense. and I yeah. think what I write is just too twiddly d. For <laughs> you're not going to march along. So. <laughs> I, I think there's a point though to be made that poetry can be co-opted mm. by by powerful forces. Um, there's a case of LBJ, in fact. Um, he took a poem of WH Auden's and used it to claim um, something like, we must love one another or die, which is uh. a famous famous line um, from September. Uh, the poem is 1939 by mm-hmm. Auden, a bit before World War II. But um, LBJ used it in a, in a television commercial to claim that he was not about to bomb Vietnam <laughs> and won the election after John F. Kennedy was assassinated uh, and uh, LBJ came in and, and we know what happened after that. They bombed um, Vietnam relentlessly. Um, but, you know, that's the power of... And, and I think particularly W.H. Auden is one of the great 
20th century political poets mm. and that he, his, his work was actually quoted after 9-11. Um, Kim Hill, in fact, on Radio mm. New Zealand, quoted um, from Musée des Beaux-Arts, the line about Icarus falling out of the sky, mm. um, comparing it to the Twin Towers. And um, Even today, I mean, um, COVID-19, um, there's a poem by W.H. Jordan which mentions um, uh, waiting for a virus to arrive. You know, a guy arrives with a suitcase in the city um, and with a carrying infection and that sort of thing. So the, the, the power of poetry, you know, is there. Um, but coming back to my point that it could be co-opted by um, other forces is the fact that um, Chairman Mao claimed he was a poet. Um, you know, um, Slobodan Milosevic, and the uh, Bol- um, Bol- um, Serbian guy, <laughs> said he was a poet, and even Saddam Hussein <laughs> claimed to be a poet because it's a civilising act to be able to write poems. Um, and these are sort of right-wing guys um, who who took over the the authority that poetry can um, to, and, and they kind of claimed that for what they were doing. Um, and so that's the power of, of language. And I think we have to be aware that it, that that there's always that kind of pressure on 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 poetic language from all these other right-wing forces, shall we say? Um, we see this even even in Trump's America. And um, I mean. I, one of the poets I really admire is Terence Hayes, a black black American poet who, when um, Trump came in in 2016, he immediately started writing a series of 70 sonnets. Called, and they were all called um, uh, um, Sonnets for My uh, Once and Future American Assassin. Mm-hmm. They, and they were directed to Trump, but also to that kind of um, bigotry which, which, which powers a lot of uh, American cultural life even today. Um, and the whole Black Lives Matter movement. Um, uh, um, I think Claudine Rankin and other poets um, are also um, writing very powerful protest poems. Mm-hmm. But but the importance of poetry then becomes um, says, um, carried on in another way by poets like Amanda Gorman, who you know the mm-hmm. the youth um, poet laureate who gets up at Biden's inauguration and speaks um, positively and powerfully and optimistically and, and hopefully about the future. Mm. And that kind of transmits itself to, to the people. So mm. you know, poetry is very much central to, um, yeah. to the culture. Mm. Like Hedy talks about it being um, the imagination pressing back against reality, doesn't mm. it? And I think that's yeah. one of the most powerful things that poetry does as mm. well. It imagines alternatives for us. Mm. Um, I'm supposed to open the floor to other questions. I think we just ran a little bit over time there. Does anyone in the audience have a question, a burning question that they want to ask any of the poets up on stage? I've got one question I could... There is, there is one, is there? Yes, at the back. This is not a burning question, but Fiona, you, I don't know how much influence your poem about Jerry Brownlee had, but don't forget he didn't get re-elected. <laughs> <laughs> True. Not because of that, I don't think. Just because <laughs> There were a vast number of reasons why I didn't get elected. Kia ora. Thank you very much for this. It's really interesting. Um, I was wondering if you could talk, any of you or all of you, about the idea about the reader and the relationship between the poet and the receiving end, the reader and the audience, because it's clear from all of you what your ideas of your own voice is and how that connects but there's always that kind of contract between the voice that you're putting out there and the people who are taking it in. And if you can, if you, do you imagine that when you're writing? Or how does that fit into how you imagine your relationship between poetry and politics? Mm, I don't really imagine 
uh, anyone wants to read it anyway. So I just sort of pretend that it, I'm writing in my diary and then I'm sending it off to my social diary that nobody looks at. So I, I don't... But I, I also imagine a, a good relationship with people who feel the same way and I always imagine that what I put out people who feel the same way will pick it up people who don't will leave it and and those are the kind of people who you want to hang out with right mm-hmm. so yeah I think that's me mm. do I think about a reader not when I'm writing no not particularly um, I'm trying to explain something to myself I'm trying to understand something and the only way I can really understand anything really is to write it down. Mm. (laughs) Um, I have to put it all down on a piece of paper and organise it. Um, So when when a reader, when someone says that something has has happened, that someone has said something that I've written has had an impact on them, then it feels amazing and wonderful and unexpected and, yeah... I'm just very grateful that that happens occasionally. Um, I write um, all sorts of poems, and some of them are more, I think, more more with the, the idea of an audience in mind. Um, but essentially, I, I sort of think of myself as a poet who's who's grounded in New Zealand. So I write out of being here in Aotearoa. So it's very important for me to live here, so I can kind of hear the voices and, and hear the tones. And, and the way the way sounds reverberate in our landscape, and, and try to communicate some of that in my poetry. But I don't necessarily think of um, of uh, an audience out there for all my work. Some of it is actually is is um, sort of more personal and, and kind of like um, really for anyone who kind of can make their way towards it. Whereas in my public role as a poet laureate, I do I do write poems which are consciously. Um, a wee bit, um, a kind of um, broadcast style. They're, they're like, um, I was asked to write, for example, by the New Zealand Herald a poem for the uh, for Anzac Day last year, and, and I consciously wrote a poem about about what it was like to be in lockdown, which I thought would be sh- commonly shared a sentiment, um, what we, our feelings of anxiety about the future and stuff, and, and that was, and so that that poem was featured in the New Zealand Herald on Anzac Day in 2020. Um, this year I wrote a poem about Anzac Day, but it was much more uh, a personal poem, more, more for people who, who are sort of friends and family almost. Um, so, and I think that's a great thing about poetry is you can write in many modes, in many, many ways. It's an ecumenical, it's a, it's a broad church, you know, there's, there's room for all kinds of poetry and all kinds of poets. So non-hierarchical, hierarchical, mm-hmm. canonical, non-canonical, it's all possible in poetry, and that's the wonderful thing about poetry, I think. Mm. Yeah. I'd like to also correct my reply. I think I kind of lied because of anxiety. But yet, same, I will actually. I have written like poems that have been for protests, and they have been political, and I've been like, oh, I am actually writing for this Māori community. Mm. So I do picture mm. my readers in that sense. Mm. But for emotional stuff, you know, it comes out, <laughs> and you don't think about them. But yeah, no, yeah. listen, cool yeah. response. Are there other questions from the floor? David's answer to that last question picked up on a really important point that you know the, the poet's role. Sometimes you need you feel as if you do have to represent a community, or a tribe, or a social group, and there's, there's sometimes that tension between that public role and and the the individual that might want to kind of. Um, I think the professor Fred Degar talks about wanting to escape his social self and just be able to write poetry that is. I think he says purely about soul mm-hmm. and how difficult that is when you have. Um, 
a particular identity in society. And it, there's that attention. I love um, my social self, though. Like, if I didn't have that community and if I didn't have what I'm, the reason I'm writing, I think I'd stop writing, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, it, writing is a healing exercise that I use to navigate my feelings. But, yeah, there is something about doing, uh, sharing it for people who you love mm-hmm. as well. And if I became just a soul with no tires and no fucker bubba, then I don't think I'd write. Mm. If that makes sense. Mm. Sorry, it wasn't a very <laughs> fleshed out thought. <laughs> it just popped in. Yeah. And sometimes it's still really interesting to hear where the thoughts go. You know, where, yeah. they, where they wander. An interesting wander. An interesting mm. amble. Yeah. Oh well if there are no other questions from the floor, there is one. Okay. Over in there. We need a mic, I think, to come to you. <laughs> Kia ora, kia ora. That was awesome, thank you. And um, I just have a quick question for Fiona, actually. Can you just say again what how old your granddaughter was? Seven. Oh, my God. Mm. I thought seven, that, and then I was like, nah, 17, she must have been. Seven-year-olds. So do we have a future? Mm. I was just, I was gobsmacked. Mm. All these bright little faces. I was horrified. Yeah, and it was. I can't bear the thought that children are living with this, Prospect, and you can't say, oh, well, they're just overdoing climate change at school. Um, these are realities that they're facing, and it's intolerable, and I don't quite know what to do about it at the moment. What can I do, apart from the usual things, you know, the submissions and the reading the paper and keeping up with what's happening? But what do I do? And that's the big problem, I think, for writers, not just poets... What's it for? Mm. What are we doing it for? What's our language for? We've got this gift of language. For a lot of us, it's a, it's a thing that hasn't been available in generations. And we have this language. Now, what do we use it for? Um, and I don't mean in a sort of puritanical, it's got to have a purpose thing. But how can, language is all we've got mm. as, a, as a species to sort of control things. I mean, David's mentioned the right taking these terrible people, taking beautiful words and turning them to a really sordid purpose, in my opinion. I'm full of opinions. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so what's it for? Mm. I, need, I need to wrap this up, unfortunately, but if anyone um, would like to come and ask further questions to the panel, they're going to be signing books upstairs. Um, we have wonderful nouns, verbs, etc. by Fiona Farrell, who recent selected, and we have David Eagleton's Wilder Years selected poems as well from Otago University Press, who sponsored the session. Um, and, and I'll have a book out one day. <laughs> so follow follow Just Maori, wait. Maori <laughs> Mermaid on Instagram. Uh, please put your hands together. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival podcast was brought to you with funding from Copyright Licensing New Zealand and the expertise of ORFM. The festival also offers thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council and the Otago Community Trust. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.